0: The title of this message is Pride, Depression, or Humility. I'm not going to have application at the end of this message. I'm going to attempt to make application as we go through uh, because it's such a short uh, song. We're still in the songs of ascent, which means the songs they sang while climbing up the mountain, going to the house of God. That strenuous climb three times a year that they would make, but the joy that they would know going to the house of God. Imagine if you only got to go to church three times a year. Some people do that intentionally, but we don't. We try to go more than that. And imagine if you only got to go three times, and all the, all the emotions that would go through you as you were climbing up that mountain, going to God's house to experience the Lord. That's what's happening here in this song. It is stated in Psalm 131 to be another one of the psalms that David wrote. Uh, There were four of those in this series that we're doing, and so this one also is called a song of ascent of David, uh, leading us to believe that this is one that David wrote. Look at verse one. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed, my, calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so the psalm the kind of breaks itself down easily into a, an outline of pride and humiliation, and I'm going to add a third point and that is going to be the point of depression which we will look at psalm 42 when we get there to see that uh, that uh, other side of this as well so let's start with pride in verse one he says lord my heart is not haughty," to remind us that uh, pride is instigated in the heart it starts deep within us Uh, he says here david is stating or praying my heart is not haughty. I'm not lifting myself up in pride he, said, he goes on to say nor are my eyes lofty so from your heart you go to your eyes and you would uh, lift yourself up with your eyes ironically if you have haughty eyes you don't point them up you point them down you look down on people and so he would be imagining himself with these haughty eyes as thinking himself superior to others and looking down on them and then he says these two statements in the end of verse 1 that do not go along with the American dream. He says, neither do I concern myself with great matters or concern myself with things too great or too high for me. I do not concern myself with things too marvelous for me. In other words, there, there is a realm of things that God does and man doesn't. There is a realm of things that God gives and man can't go get. Let me just give you some examples. Why were you born where you were born? You ever think about that? Why were you born in the United States of America as opposed to some dark communist country? Have you traveled very much? Have you been to these, some of these foreign countries? They're not the same. There's a vast difference in them and being here. We just recently met a guy who was from Brazil and he said, everybody in Brazil dreams of one day living in the United States. He said, it's the dream of everybody. I said, why? He said, have you been to Brazil? <laughs> I said, well, once, not very long. He said, there's, there's, there's no economy. There's, there's a Great Depression. There's uh, just all these things. He began to name one after the other. He said, I, too, one day, as a young man, hope to live in the United States. It's, it's every other country's dream to come and live here. Why were you born here? Why were you born in the family you were born in? I mean, we could go on and on. Why do you have what you have? What do you get what you get? These things are, are high and marvelous things. These are great matters. America says, pull up your boots and work and go get it yourself. But there's something in this psalm about contentment. There's something here about being satisfied with the lot God has given you me personalize it for you for you when God called for, for myself I should say when God called me to preach I had uh, high aspirations the highest you know if you wouldn't I would think you're not Christian for God to use me to preach to thousands uh, initially thought I would be a revival preacher I would preach from church to church and that's what I did for some years going from church to church and preaching revivals to a number of people But as churches go, in the world's scheme of things, we are what you would call a, a smaller church. you agree with that? And so to have contentment with the lot God has given you is a place of peace that comes from knowing this, that God brings high things to pass and marvelous things to pass, and you must be submitted to the will of God. And to think that you deserve more or higher or better than the lot God has given you is a place of arrogance. And so God says, I do not concern myself here with things too great or things too, or David says, things too marvelous for me. And so I'm going to just go ahead and apply this point about pride, if I may. Pride is the one thing that everybody can see except the one who has it. Everyone else looking at that person can see their pride, but the one who has it cannot see his own pride. That's why Psalms chapter 73 verse 6 says, Pride is like a necklace. It's like something that's worn that everybody sees. Oh, he's wearing a necklace. Everybody can see it and say, oh, that man is proud, but he himself cannot see it. Pride is is very dangerous because God finds pride as his enemy. It is the enemy of God. It is the sin most opposed to God. First Peter 5.5 5 says, Likewise, younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, be submissive to one another, clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a theme throughout Scripture where God says from the proud, he moves himself far away, but from the humble, he draws himself in and he draws them to himself. And so, if you are proud, you are making yourself the opponent of God, the enemy of God, and someone who is opposed to God. C.S. Lewis—I don't quote many people, but C.S. Lewis has a great, great quote on pride. He says, "According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness—these are all mere flea bites in comparison." It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 12 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than there is for him. And so God is not pleased with pride. Psalms 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is on high, Yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Let's just break that verse down real quick. Let me preach it to you real quick. The Lord is on high. What that means is the Lord is the highest. He's the greatest. Of all the beings that you could ever know or read about or think of, there is nothing and no one higher than God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the everlasting God. God is God, which means he is the highest and the greatest, and he rules and he reigns. what it says, but yet he regards the low. As high as he is, he will stoop to the lowest of sinners. You say, if we were to examine today the sinners in this room, John, I, I should find myself to be cheapest among them. The greatest sinner among them. If that is you, you need to know this. This great, high, and lofty God... He will stoop to the lowest of sinners in our midst. And He will pour out His grace and His love upon them and rescue them from their sins and bring them to Himself. Literally, to His home to live forever. At the end of it, the proud He knows from afar. In other words, when He sees those who are proud, God stays away from them. He keeps them at His distance. If you say, I feel far from God, then you must ask the question, Are you proud? Because it is those that are proud that God keeps farthest from Himself. In Proverbs chapter 6, He begins to list the number of sins, and He lists the first one. He says, Six sins I hate, yea, seven. And the first one that He's going to name is the sin of pride. You see, God has a great quarrel against pride in those who are proud. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. In other words, it's talking about the Lord's return when He comes to take us in the last days. It says, His grace will fall on the proud and lofty, and they shall be brought low in that final day of judgment. Even to those who are saved, if you consider yourself in that category of a believer in Jesus, someone who's been saved by Jesus, even if that is your condition, you must know that God often speaks of correcting those Christians who are proud. When He sees you lingering towards pride, He sees it as one of your greatest dangers of your life. And so He will bring something into your life to rescue you from this great danger called pride. It's what said of Paul uh, when it speaks of Paul's thorn in the flesh, we're not given a definition of what that thorn in the flesh was of Paul. Some think it was a sin. Some think it was a sickness. Some think it was another person who was mistreating him. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was that Paul was given, the Bible says there that he was given a thorn in the flesh so that he would not be exalted above measure. Literally it means so that he would not exalt himself above measure. He was given a thorn in the flesh. And so, if you're a Christian, God will keep you low in heart. He will keep you away from pride. And if you're moving that way, He will use various means to keep you from pride. Sometimes He'll use sickness to keep you from pride. Sometimes He'll use the reproach of other people to keep you from pride. Sometimes He'll use great suffering to keep you from pride. And sometimes He'll use even some great sin that you're at war with. A sin that's more than you can bear to keep you from pride. Why is pride so bad? Because pride is the imitation of the devil. It is the devil who fell by his pride. He was the proudest creature in heaven, discontent with his position in heaven, and for that reason he was cast to the earth. It was for his pride that he was cast to the earth and condemned to spend eternity in hell. Pride is a contradiction to Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. So Jesus, who is with God and the same as God, lowered himself and became a servant, even became a human being, even to the point of death. If Jesus would do that, if we would seek to be proud, we would be contrary to Jesus. we give you three kinds of people who struggle with pride. First of all is the rich. If you think of the rich and you think of somebody besides yourself, stop. <laughs> Don't think of the rich and think of somebody besides yourself. Think of the rich and think of yourself, because if you live in the United States, you're more wealthy than 97% of the world. Did you know that? So if you think of the rich, think of yourself, and the Bible often speaks of rich warring with pride. 1 Timothy 6:17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Another type of person who struggles with pride is, is what I'll call the called. In particular, it is those people who are used of God. The reason that those who are used of God struggle with pride is because we know that pride is tricky. You can do something good and end in pride about it and ruin the whole matter. You wives need to know this. You could ask your husband, are you proud? And there is no right answer. If you want to trick your husband, here's the way to do it. There is no right answer. If he says, yes, I'm, I struggle with pride, then he's, being you know, honest, and he's a proud man. If he says, no, I don't struggle with pride, then the moment he says that, he became proud. Can you see that? And he now struggles with pride. So women don't ask me that. I'm just joking. Don't ask me that ever. It is those that God would use most, sometimes that struggle most, with pride, like Paul. Let me just give you this statement. I don't want to linger on it because I don't want to add too much to it but just listen to this humility in bad actions are more pleasing to God than pride in good actions think about that humility in bad actions is more pleasing to God than pride in good actions so for preachers in particular those who are used of God to proclaim the word of God the Bible speaks very specifically about them that they are not to have pride. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 6 that those who are going to be preachers must not be a novice. In other words, they must not be immature. Lest being puffed up with pride, they fall into the same condemnation as the devil. In other words, this great honor of proclaiming God's word must not be done by someone who is immature because the moment they do that, they will become proud in what they're doing and in so... Would become like the devil. The third group is the recipients of grace. And I'm putting in your notes here the, the church. You say, I wonder why the church is so proud today. It's because we have grace. And because we have grace, we consider ourselves chosen by God, beloved by God, and sometimes that leads us into a position of pride where we Esteem ourselves higher than others. The Bible clearly says it's to be the other way, doesn't it? It says, esteem not yourself higher than others. Esteem others higher than yourself. But because you have received the grace of God, and God has repeatedly given you grace, and repeatedly given you His favor and His forgiveness, it is easy for the church to move into a place of pride. Remind you of two scriptures, First Corinthians 4, 7 for who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if indeed you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if God saved you, why do you brag about it as if you did not receive it? You didn't earn it. He didn't choose you because He saw some innate goodness in you that one day would come out. No, He saw all of your wretchedness and all of your sin and He saved you because Jesus died on the cross in your place. Not because you're worth it but because Jesus was worth it. And if you get the two of those mixed up, you are becoming proud and arrogant. But if you put Jesus in his proper place, you bow before him with worship and praise because you would not have anything you have, including God's favor, if it were not for Jesus alone. Galatians chapter 6 verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. A great friend of mine who's now passed away used to often say I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. I think that's a good definition of yourself. If you define yourself I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. You must understand that the greatest pride or the greatest crime of pride is that it is the ultimate sin of idolatry. You were formed out of the dust of the earth. You were taken and organized as dust and made into a human being and God breathed life into you and God will return you one day to the dust. And someone will stand over your casket and probably speak these words from dust to dust. You were made from dust and you will return to dust. And you that are but dust, you would question God You would think you know more than God. You would think you can raise your fist at God. You would imagine that you can question the decisions of God and the plan of God that is on your life. To lift yourself up like that is to put God beneath you and to say that you know better what should have happened. You know better how it should have went or how it should go. And this is the sin of idolatry. What you're really doing by pride is you're putting yourself on the throne and taking God off the throne. So what is David's intention here when he gives us verse 1? Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with things too great or things too marvelous for me. I think his intention here is not just to make a statement, but to make a prayer that from his heart... He's put a song in it. From his heart, there would be no arrogance. So I would encourage you to often pray that God would keep you from pride, that your heart would not be haughty, that your eyes would not be lifted up, and that you cannot take great, marvelous matters into your hands. They are to be left in the hands of God. Number two. For number two, I'm going to speak about depression, and I want you to turn within your Bibles to Psalm 42, if you would. You don't know how hard it's been for me to preach only one message for all of these 15 psalms. We're not done yet, and I'm not promising I'm going to continue because I almost this week, I, want, I wanted to preach four messages from Psalm 131, uh, but so far I'm just doing one. You should be really excited, but anyway. Uh, Psalm 42, I'm adding, at least I'm, I'm not... Preaching more than one, but I'm adding a psalm in here, okay? Psalm 42 I'm on depression. And here's why I want to add it. If you'll start in verse four, he says, "When I remember these things," underline the word "remember." When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Do you see that? Stop there at the end of verse four. What is he obviously talking about in verse 4 he's talking about the ascension that we've been studying the pilgrim feast at the end of verse 4 there were three of those a year when all the people all the congregation would make that journey up the the mount zion up to the house of god to worship three times a year so verse 4 in psalm 42 is bringing the hearer here to to one of these ascension days. One of these days when they're climbing the mount to the house of God. And look what it says. Let's read it again. I remember these things. He's remembering back to a time when he went to God's house. And he says, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. Look what he says. With the voice of joy. Underline joy and praise. With the voice of joy and praise. He says, I remember the days when we and all the people went to God's house and I had so much joy in my heart and I had so much praise in my heart. He says, I remember those days. It was during the pilgrim feast, during those three times a year when we all went to God's house singing those songs of ascent, so excited to get to God's house, so filled with joy and filled with praise this is a Christian man Uh, the reason I'm doing this one on depression here is because I understand that it is very current today this this depression there are two kinds of depression clinical depression and spiritual depression clinical depression is determined by a doctor who uh, says you must have five out of nine symptoms Uh, their treatment is usually some form of medication however studies have proven that placebo response is the same as antidepressant response in other words giving them something that they think is the drug versus the real drug has the same effect It's pretty, pretty shocking isn't it what does that mean it means that there's power in your mind that's what it means there's power in your mind to overcome even some some kinds of clinical depression. Maybe not all of them. But I'm not speaking today about clinical depression. I'm speaking today about spiritual depression. So let me define for you spiritual depression. First of all, it's a person who's saved. And spiritual depression is discouragement and loss of joy in the Lord. Additional symptoms may include dissatisfaction with God, angry with God, mad at god no desire for the things of god which would include no desire for the people of god no desire for the worship of god no desire for the word of god no desire for praying to god and overall that would mean no desire for church some sort of negative mood about god let me describe it for you personally you said god have you ever been spiritually depressed we didn't realize that all of us get to this place Amen? Amen. I would say, yes. You'd say, how much? Quite frequently. And for me, it's where I lose this happiness in the Lord. There is a joy in the Lord that comes from being right with God and walking with God. It is a place, a position that you get to spiritually that that causes you to go through your day with some sort of peace and satisfaction in the grace of God. For me, I just experience it as... I'm right with God and I have a happy happy place with God. Spiritual depression is when you lose that for whatever reason. It could be for a lot of reasons. The greatest of which I think is sin. The least of which is, I think, of maybe just thinking about something bad. Right? Thinking about something like sin or thinking about... What if my child does this? Or what if my husband does this? Or what if I can't do this? Or don't have the money to pay this? All of these thoughts about what might happen or could happen alone could lead any good Christian into spiritual depression. And so Psalm 42, if you look back with me, after stating, I remind you, verse 4, if you were discerning the word remember, He's remembering the time when he went to God's house and he was so filled the end of verse 4 his voice was with joy and praise. He was so filled with internal joy for getting to go to the house of God and external praise praise to God for who God is what God's doing what God's done how great God has been to me. That's what praise is. And how great God is apart from me even if he seems like he's not been good to me. He's still great. Look at verse 5. These are the verses I've so often brought to you as a coach that I used to bring to my team, my players, where you do self-talk. You've got to learn how to talk to yourself, how to preach to yourself. And the psalmist in verse 5 does that self-talk. He's talking back to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I will yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Let me give you some things to underline in verse 5. Underline the words, Hope in God. Underline the words, Yet praise Him. I will, in other words, I will praise Him again. I'm depressed right now. I'm not happy in the Lord. I'm not praising the Lord right now. But I will praise Him again. And then the last part, For the help He's going to help me. How's He going to help me? With His countenance. In other words, I'm going to praise Him again. Why am I so cast down? There's there a spiritual maturity. There's a spiritual maturity if you can get to the place when you can recognize spiritually you're not doing so well without having to be told. Y'all with me? You can recognize... Hey, hey, God, hey, good boy... <laughs> You're not, you're not doing so good with the Lord right now. I need to be able to make that declaration about myself. And you need to be able to make that declaration about yourself. That's what the psalmist is doing in verse 5. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? Why are you so sad? Why are you, why are you so dissatisfied with God? Why have you stopped praying? Why have you stopped reading the Word? Why do you not desire to go to church? Why have you stopped praising God. All these are things that you're saying to yourself within your own mind and then you respond to yourself with what it says in verse 5, hope in God. Look, look John, get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes back on God and put your hope in the living King. You, as a mark of maturity, will learn how to recognize your spiritual condition and then preach to yourself. Have hope in the Lord, man. For God's sake, John, stop being a whip and get up and trust God again. You must learn how to compel yourself to put your faith back in God who saved you. And he says, when you do hope in God, I will praise Him again. You can leave church this Sunday and say, boy, I'm depressed right now, but... God, I'm going to my hope in you, and next Sunday, I'm coming ready. John better have something, because I'm, I'm praising God. <laughs> there better be some good singing, because I'm praising God. Why does it say in the end of that verse 5, for the help of his countenance? Because he's saying, the reason I know I'm going to praise him again, the reason I know there's help and hope in him, is because there is this help of God's, Countenance. In other words, I'm going to experience the presence of God, the countenance of God, and when I experience the presence of God, the countenance of God, He's going to fill me with that joy again and put that praise in the heart of you. Now that's important. Uh, circle the word His in the end of verse 5. The help of His countenance. And then he, he repeats this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is... Now He's talking to God about it. He started out talking to himself. Now that was self-talk. Verse 6, now he's talking to God about it. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore I will remember. Circle the word remembrance. The second time he said it. I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of the Hermon, and from the hills of Mizar. These are the places that you would go through on your way to the house of God, climbing up the mountains. These are the physical landmarks where he probably experienced God at some point. I was talking to John this morning about when I, he just got back to the mountains this week on his anniversary. Woo! All right. And I was talking to him about when he used to go up top of this mountain back there in Asheville, where I grew up, and pray and talk to God. And so it would be like it would be like this psalmist is saying, "I remember when I used to go up there on the mountain and pray and how I experienced." presence of God, the power of God up there. He's, he's, he's bringing God into this, and he's still recognizing his soul is cast down. It's like a prayer. But then look down at verse 11. He says it again. Why are you cast down, on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Same thing. For I shall yet praise him. Same thing as verse 5. But look at the end of it. The help of my countenance and my God. You see the difference? In verse 5, it says the help of his countenance. In verse 11, it says the help of my countenance and my God. Because there's been a change that has occurred in these two places. Do you mold... If you're here today and you're you're struggling with spiritual depression, let me ask you a question. Do you long to get back to God? I mean this, to get out of it? To get back in the place where you were joyous in the Lord and praised the Lord? Do you long to get back? Let me give you an example of it. Look back in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, I thirst, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when I will come and appear before God. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? He says, My tears, are, I'm, I'm living off tears. But I long to be like the deer and I see the deer panting for water and the same way my soul longs for God. If you're here today and you're depressed spiritually, do you long to get back? Are you happy to stay in your misery? Some people won't wallow in spiritual depression for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes Years! Years! Why? Because they found some sort of satisfaction in wallowing there in that spiritual depression. I'm, I'm asking you today, if there's enough of your glimmer of God's grace left in your heart and mind that you would honestly say, yes, I'm spiritually depressed, but I do want to go back to God. The same way the deer pants for water. My soul longs for God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for the living God. Verse 3, I'm tired of my tears. I'm tired of crying and weeping and begging and worrying and feeling so far away from God. Oh God, I want to come back to you. Do you have enough? grace of Jesus left in your being to cry out to God and say, Lord, even from my spiritual depression, I want to come back to you. Let me say, spiritual depression happens to everybody at some point. Most people have experienced it or will experience it. It happens quickly. It can come on you in a moment. You'll be doing good today. And tomorrow you could call me and say, hey John, you preach that message on spiritual depression. I thought, who are these crazy people in depression? And today, it's all over me. I'm so discouraged. I'm so down. And you need to know this. Even the strongest of Christians experience spiritual depression. People like Jonah. People like Peter. People like Elijah. And when Elijah was depressed in 1 Kings chapter 19, listen to what the Lord says to him. And there, then Elijah went into a cave and he spent the night there in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to you, to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's going into that cave to pout and to be depressed and to be alone. That's a sign, by the way, of being spiritually depressed. You like to get alone too much. Moms and dads, it's not normal for your children to always say, I need to be alone. That's a sign of spiritual depression or sin or the other. 1 Kings 9, 19, 13. So it was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to Elijah and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Two times God came to Elijah and said, Elijah, what are you doing in this state of spiritual depression? What he's saying is, Elijah, you shouldn't be here. There's no legitimate reason for you to be living This long Elijah in spiritual depression. It's what the psalmist is recognizing three times in Psalm 42 when he says to himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? I'm going to get to this word disquieted in a minute in our Psalm 131, where he's going to say that his soul is quieted. Here it says his soul is disquieted, it means his soul is loud. All he can hear is anger and doubt and worries and fears and all these things are going back and forth in his brain and in his mind and all of that has him so beat down, so unhappy in the Lord, so so unable to praise the Lord, so unable to read the Bible and so unable to pray. The Bible says in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. And he prayed again the heaven gave rain and it produced fruit. What's your point? My point is this. Preacher Elijah was a great man of God. He had the ability. He says he's a nature like ours, just like you and me. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Whoa, Elijah, you are the spiritual man. And then he prayed again and said, "Let it rain," and it rained. Elijah, you're so godly, you're the spiritual man, and now he's hiding out in the cave in spiritual depression. You see, now I'm making that. You see that? He was so strong he could pray, he stopped the rain for three and a half years, but he's yet so weak he could end up in a cave in spiritual depression. And God comes to him twice and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Come out of that. Here today, and you're spiritually depressed. I would ask you to pray. God, drag me out of this depression. God, please open my eyes that I can see you and not my own condition. God, don't let me lay here spiritually depressed any longer. Let me give you the, let me give you the coaches' halftime speech. All right. It's time for you to get back in the game. You've sat on the sidelines long enough. You've whimpered and wallowed over there in your sorrow. Yeah, it's. I see it. It has been hard what you've gone through. You, yes, you have suffered. It has been so difficult. Many of people would have laid down and quit if they'd gone through what you've gone through. It's no wonder you've cried so much. It's no wonder you've cried so much. But it's time for that day to end. Don't you long to be right with the God that saved you and to know His joy again, to know His presence again, and to be filled with praise for Him again. It's time for you to get up off the bench and get back in the game. It's time for you to return to the Word of God where you read it with anticipation that the living God would speak directly to little you. It's time for you to get back into a season of praying where you can lay on your face to God and say, God, I'm not worthy. I've been shaking my fist at you, but it's me who you should be shaking your fist at. I'm not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy for what you have done for me and what you have given me. It's time for you to get back up and serve the living God. If you're not spiritually depressed today and you're here, would you pray with me this prayer? Lord, don't let the devil discourage any more of our people. It's been enough. I've seen enough. Don't let the devil have his foothold. In your children, Lord, any longer. And so, would you go back to God? Would you come back to God? Cry out to God for His grace, for His help. You're desperate, you're weak, you're sinful. And these are the great signs that prove more than ever you need the living God, you need Him. That's depression. Go back with me to Psalms 131. The last one is humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Psalms 131 verse 2. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Remember in Psalms 42 it kept saying, this quieted. why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you disquieted? In other words, my And it used the same words. Soul. Why what's my soul disquieted? In other words, in your mind is racing. Racing. All these thoughts, all these what-ifs, all these burdens, all these worries, all these things that can happen. But in Psalm 131, when he's found the place of humility, he says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Now in my mind and in my soul, there's just this, this peace. This rest in God. And so he speaks of, verse 2, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And So I want to speak about this weaned child. It's like the biblical illustration of a quieted soul before the Lord. It's a biblical illustration of this humility and this quieted soul before the Lord to define this illustration, I'm gonna first speak about the child not yet weaned, that is the infant. The infant that's still on his mother's breast or her mother's breast. This baby is the one that cries and cries and cries. I remember when my girls especially because they pull on their daddy's heart more than the boys. So I remember when my girls would I would hold them as an infant and they would just cry and cry and cry and cry and Abigail was really loud prior, believe it or not, and she cried the loudest of all our children, and she would just scream so loud it hurt your ears, but more than that, she had this way about her, you had such pity for her. And you're holding this baby, you've had one, you know this, and they're just screaming like they're dying, screaming like the world's coming to be end, screaming like there's no hope for tomorrow. And then finally, they're so exhausted from their crying and screaming and fussing that they just stop out of nowhere, lay their head on your shoulder, and go to sleep. Daddy, you remember that? Nothing feels so good as that. No greater relief when she finally rests your, her head on your shoulder and goes to sleep. She literally has worn herself out crying and fretting over whatever her little mind was thinking about. When in reality I was there all day providing for her and her mom's feeding her I wasn't feeding her, but her mom's feeding her we're taking care of her. I was there all day to give her whatever she needed whenever she needed but she had this little crying. Yeah. Sometimes our crisis is like that. You fight and you cry And you try mentally to figure it out. What if you do this? What if you say that? What if you make this move? You try to physically figure it out. What if I worked that job? Or what if I paid that one first? Or what if I did this? Would it solve it? And you're trying to take matters into your own hands. And you're carrying this burden. And you're fretting over this burden when the Lord has been there the whole time and he just wants to give you rest he's like "It's like saying to you what are you crying about you're so loud you're so loud what are you crying about just rest it's okay just put your hand on my shoulder and rest and trust me that's what God is saying let me define it to the weaned child because that's what our passage speaks about the weaned child a child who has stopped taking milk from his mother's breast and is now eating table food winged to describe this to the modern generation I don't have a place to go because I look around in the modern generation of most babies who are winged and they still act like babies <laughs> there's I was in the airport some weeks ago and I've never seen so many kids in the floor Wallowing around. I pointed out to Abby, what are all these kids doing? They're just whining, literally flailing their arms, and parents just don't even pay any attention. They're just laying there wallowing and crying. and flailing. These are like three year olds, four year olds, five year olds, some seven and eight year olds. Maybe it was because we we're in the airport in Orlando where they come and go. I found out because we had to sit there for a couple of hours. They come and go to Disney World. That's where they come and go from the Orlando airport, and there's just all these people with gobs and gobs of luggage with children laying on the floor crying like crazy. <laughs> oh, I don't know if there's some, something there with Disney World, but I don't know. That's the way it was. And, and the, the biblical picture here is using an illustration for a winged child as a content, peaceful, resting in their arms child that's weaned, and has all their trust in their mom that's the biblical illustration but if you live in today's society you can't even imagine that maybe so imagine some children in our church okay do that okay hopefully we have some of those who just rest in their parents arms when they're weaning this respectable two-year-old not always no but this respectable two-year-old who has moved from their mother's breast to table food and they've learned this Table food's pretty good. <laughs> There's some good stuff. I don't know what it is they keep giving me, but it's really good. Daddy, it's to be asked just throwing that one out. <laughs> it's really, really good. And so they are what is, the Bible calls here a quieted soul. The word quieted means to be silent, to be still. In some places, it's translated as being dumb. In other words, one who does not speak or does not need to speak does not even need to speak you know when our children were infants uh, we called them sign language we taught them how to say it. before they could speak i mean young young i don't know how I have passed my life don't get her started
1: anyway they were young young
0: and they could say please and thank you and uh, i'm finished eating and may i be excused they did all this with sign language before they had the mental skills to make verbal language. They have the ability to make sign language. But here's a two-year-old who doesn't even need to speak. Why don't they need to speak? Because they know their parents are going to give them what they need. It's also translated as to wait, this word quieted. Just waiting is not hard if you know at the end of your waiting God's going to give you exactly what you were waiting for. That make sense? Waiting is not hard if you know at the end of your waiting you're going to get what you need. And it's also translated sometimes as dead. You know, how restful is this child? How how quieted is this child? It's like they're dead. They don't need nothing. They don't want anything. They're not asking for anything. They're just patiently waiting, trusting their mother Silent. And the the last thing is translated as is rest. This quiet rest. And so it says in verse, verse 2, look at it with me. I have calmed and quieted my soul. A quieted soul. So a quieted soul is a person who they, doesn't, they don't have all this stuff rattling around making noise in your mind and in your soul. All this stuff that's bothering you. All the stuff that you lay awake at night about. All the stuff that you worry about. There's no worry in my soul. There's no bother in my soul. There's nothing scaring me in my soul. There's nothing bringing me this unwanted fear in my soul. Fear. There's nothing bringing me this. I have a quieted soul. I'm not afraid. let big one. I'm not afraid. There's nothing grieving me. Do you know this? I've I've experienced this in recent days. You can grieve something that hasn't even happened. You know that? I'm grieving it. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm already grieving. This grief, there's this... You don't have that grief. Why? Because you have a quieted soul. No rattling around. Women, this is... I've been told. (laughs) I've been told this is something that... Your mind doesn't shut down when you lay down. Guys, we can shut it down. Usually, not always, but usually we can just turn that mind off. <laughs> Sometimes we don't have to lay down. We can just sit there. But I understand for women this is a hard thing to turn your mind off. There's things just going back and forth. What if this and what if that? And i got to fix this and i got to do that. This is a, a humility of a quieted soul just resting in the arms of God. Look what it says again in verse 2. Circle the word I. It says, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Lest you get too faith bound and believe that this is purely a work of God, the psalmist makes a point here to say that it is he who quieted his soul. In other words, you must have to do something here. You must have to participate somehow in this weaned child contentment happening in your own soul. And how could that be something you must do? How could it be anything other than prayer? It it would be you saying, Lord, I want to be like a weaned child resting in the arms of God. That's what I want, Lord. I, I know I can't do it. It's humility. I know I can't do it. I know I can't fix it. I know I can't secure it. I'm tired of worrying about it, tired of thinking about it, tired of talking around all the what-ifs in my mind. I'm tired of being scared of it. I'm tired of grieving over it. Lord, I want you to make me like a weaned child. Resting in the arms of God. So I'm going to give you two visual images of prayer that you're going to have to use all your life if you don't already. The first one is this. You taking your child... Or your spouse and you picture God sitting on his throne with his arms like this and you take your child up there just like Hannah did and and you lay your child in the arms of God if you don't already have that visual image in your mind you need to get it in your mind and you need to do this in prayer often I I do it all the time (laughs) I, I often do it with tears and I'm saying Lord I give you Levi again. I give you Thomas again. I give you Abigail again. I give you Maggie again. And you visually, visually lay them in the arms of God. And here's what you're saying. I can't fix them. I can't raise them. I can't do it. I don't have what they need in every way. But you can. And I trust them with you. I trust you with them. I'm giving them over to you again and again. You must have this visual prayer life that you often go through where you lay your children. For some of you, it will often be your spouse. Where you lay your spouse at the arms of, in the arms of God. And lay your spouse there for God to protect or God to take care of. The second visual image you must have in your prayer life is not of you laying your spouse and your children in the arms of God, but it is of you Climbing up into the arms of God. You yourself crawling to Jesus and saying, Lord, I want you to quiet my soul. I'm coming. I've been laying awake for 30 minutes, walling around with whatever. Whatever I need to do, whatever I'm worried about, whatever I'm tired of. And Lord, I'm just, I'm crawling up into your arms. I trust you. I trust you, Lord. I lay myself in your hands. Because the humi- do you see the humility there? What you're saying is, God, you know what you're doing, and I trust you. God, you've got everything under control, and I trust you. And I'm going to turn it all over to you. And along with that humility, that weaned child humility comes. Verse three of Psalm 131. Oh, Israel. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. In other words, from now and forever. So you crawl up there in the arms of God and you say, Lord, I put my hope in you. Remember, hope in the Bible is not a wish like American hope. It is a faith. I put my hope in you. I believe what you're going to do. I believe you know best. I believe you're going to take care of this. I believe it's in your hands. Look what he says, from now and forever. Starting right now. If you picture yourself in that prayer calling in the arms of God, you are putting your hope in God right now. Not waiting until tomorrow. I'm doing it right now. I'm laying my child in God's arms right now. And I'm also trusting Him forever. And I'm saying to you for my own self personally, this is a repetitive thing that I, I believe you'll do over and over throughout your life. Would you pray with me? Would you start by asking God to forgive you for pride? Would you say, Lord, forgive me where i have been proud there. I'd try to take measures into my own hands. Would you, would you make this your prayer? Lord, don't let my heart be you. Don't let my eyes be lofty. Don't let me be too concerned with great and marvelous things. i put all these things in your hands. If you're here today and you've been spiritually depressed and you know it, would you just come back to God right now? Your prayer is simple. This is, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I want to come back. I want to know the joy of the Lord again. I want to to have a hunger for the things of God again. I want to be close to You again, Lord. I want to know Your presence again, Lord. I want to be filled with praise again, Lord. I want to worship You again, Lord. I'm tired of crying, Lord. I'm tired of crying. I want to come back to the place where I know the joy of the living God in my life. Help me, Lord. Drag me, Lord, from my depression. That's your prayer. If you found some sense of humility today, and you have a desire to be like a weaned child, then I give you just a minute. Would you go through, start, starting with your spouse? Would you would you lay young people would be your parents? Would you lay them in the arms of Jesus? I'm bringing my parents. I'm bringing my spouse. Would you lay them in the arms of Jesus and say, Lord, they're yours. I give them over to you. Make them everything you want them to be. Help them, Lord. Bless them, Lord. Then, parents, would you do that for your children? Would you just one by one, name by name? Lay them in the arms of Jesus. I give them to you, Lord. I'm so thankful for them, but I know this. I can't do everything they need. And I'm going to be gone one day. I give you my children, Lord. I give you every one of them. i lay them in your hands. I trust you with them. I humbly give them over to you. You can handle this, Lord. I believe that. I put my hope in you. And then last, would you crawl up into the Lord's arms this morning, visually in your mind, and say, Lord, I want to be like a winged child. I'm going to put my head on your shoulder and just rest. Just rest. I'll rest in you, Lord, today. I'll rest in Jesus today. I don't have anything to ask. I don't have anything to give. I just want to sit here a, a while, Lord, and rest. It's so good to be near to you, Lord. It's so good to be here with you, Lord. I bless you, Lord. I bless you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. You are worthy, Lord. I rest in you, Lord, today. Father, I pray for our church, those who are listening. I pray that we would find this rest of humility, this hope of humility in resting in the arms of God. And our labors would cease. And we would live the abundant life of rest in Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stay with us.